Hey sis, welcome to the Women Series Podcast. I'm your host, Holly Sinclair. This is a show where period talk is celebrated, feminism is the driver, and fertility doesn't just equal baby making. Join me and my colleagues as we explore health, wellness, and womanhood. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. I was... I was thinking about how I'm going to set up the conversation in this intro Um, and I'm both excited but I've got to be honest, I'm very nervous about having this conversation just because my audience who have followed me for some time I'm sure can presume my opinions on the things that we're about to talk about. And those who have listened to the podcast, I know that they will know what my opinions are as well. However, and I'm sure you're, you fully understand this more than anyone, it's, there's so much nuance that goes into what you're about to talk about. But in the landscape of media, whether it's social media or news media, there's no nuance, right? And I think this is half the issue. Um, So having these conversations in a calm and educated way is very, very challenging, I find. And I'm sure you know better than anyone (laughs) that that's the case. Um, So while I'm super pumped to get into today's convo, I'm also a bit nervy. Um, I guess I want to start with the question of how have we gotten to where we are? Because... There's so much that I want to pick your brain on from the transgender conversation through to the surrogacy. But I think just to frame it, how did we actually get to this point? Are you speaking in the broader context of fertility? Yeah. And women's bodies? Yeah. Um, Wow. That is a big question. I mean, I did work for many, many years in hospital nursing. So some of how we got to where we are is sort of what I would call the collapse of good, proper medicine. You know, so things that in the olden days, doctors would say, well, no, that's not good for you. Um, But when you look at fertility medicine, doctors don't seem to have any problem whatsoever just pumping women full of big gun fertility drugs, high doses and over and over and over again, because it's big money. So that's one of the reasons. Two, I think some of the blame goes on on women. You know, we we haven't done a good job of knowing our bodies and in particular knowing our fertile bodies and whether that be older women like myself haven't done a good job of teaching younger women or um, high school biology teachers haven't done a good Whoever, I don't know who I want to blame on that. But, you know, women overwhelmingly, I'm really surprised how little they know about their body and how it works. So, um, and also, you know, we don't take seriously the fact that there are things that we do that are harmful to our health, in particular, our fertile health, you know, we don't eat properly, we, we, you know, smoke or drink too much, or we're too, too overweight, or we wait too long, and our fertility is very, I, I tell people, it's amazing how fragile human fertility is, you know, we're not like uh, rabbits, <laughs> But um, so when you think about what all has to go in and line up just right in order to conceive and have a child. So so some of that's been going on. And, you know, the American context is, you know, you can have it all. 
you know, women have sort of bought into the, we can have it all. We can wait till we're 40 or 50. We can pursue our career. We can do all these things and, and we, we, we can have it all. And, you know, I'm in the backyard of the Silicon Valley where most of the companies out here, you know, they offer their female employees as part of a employee benefit fertility preservation, you know, freeze and bank your eggs so you can stay in the workforce and, and we'll pay for you to have your eggs, you know, harvested and frozen and stored until you're ready for them. So I think just a lot of that has just kind of come in in some kind of big collision to kind of get us to where we're at. And we believe the hype that that fertility medicine is here to save the day. And, you know, if we if we want to have a baby, you know, if it doesn't happen, the you know, the old fashioned way, you know, there's all these doctors and specialists that are going to help me. I read a great book called Motherhood Deferred. It's an older book now. Um, and it's, you know, a woman's her own account on how she, you know, she deferred motherhood, deferred motherhood, because she sort of believed I can have it all. I can have the baby when I want to. And only when she went to finally have that child was she, you know, incredibly saddened because it that window had, you know, closed. Mm. What do you think the consequence is of having trying to have it all I mean I guess specifically in the research that you've done I don't know if the statistics are similar in the states but in Australia one in six couples embark on IVF and one in 25 children is an IVF baby um what do you think the consequences are that you're seeing well a couple things come to mind one is obviously health consequences you know, I, I would love to be able to um, understand data. You know, how many women today are suffering from reproductive cancers that had in their history that they had, you know, gone through rounds and rounds of IVF? You know, mm-hmm. we have, you know, breast cancer rates that are, you know, are obscenely high in the United States. Um, uh, I, I think the consequences will be there on children, you know, because this is relatively new technology still. And we don't have a, you know, we do have more and more children being born this way, but we're we're only now getting data and studies. And will there be, you know, negative impact on on children's health? And we're seeing a little bit of that in the medical literature as it relates to um, uh, just the com- complications that children that are conceived through fertility medicine. Uh, financial. I mean, how many people have gone broke? Uh, and, and and again, a consequence is equity. You know, in the way our healthcare is structured in the United States, you know, for, you're on your own pretty much for fertility medicine, um, and it's very expensive. So it, it means that only people that have access to economic resources can even, um, you know, get involved in in visiting and pursuing fertility medicine. You know, mm-hmm. if you're a low income woman, if you're an uninsured woman in the United States and you have problems with your fertility, there's there's nothing offered for you. So I think that's a you know that's a consequence too on just how some people have have things and other people are the have nots. Mm. I saw I I think and I could be wrong, but I saw you share some information around how many people um, in the States used IVF. It was around 390,000. I could be wrong. And then there was like, yeah, there was, and then you, you stated that, um, but only 79,000 people had a child. So I think the the percentage was about 28% return on investment. So yes, that is, that is, that's a data that is tracked by the U S we have the centers for disease control and they do an annual report and it's a very flimsy 
thin little report. They don't track a lot of things. Um, but basically, you know, um, they track how many IVF cycles were done in a year and how many live births um, came about that. And it is in the 20% range. And the nuance, of course, to any of that data is were they, were they fresh embryos that were used in the IVF transfer or frozen embryos? Did they use donor eggs or did they use non-donor eggs? Did they use fresh donor eggs or frozen donor eggs? So it's still hard to get down in the weeds, but the success rate is not impressive at all. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., I always say the average take-home IVF baby is a six-figure cost. You know, it's hundreds of thousands. And then they have, of course, all the add-ons. You know, do you want to do um, pre-implantation genetic screening? Do you want to do sex select? Do you want to do twins or, you know, you know, all the kind of, we call those the add-ons. Mm. And do you know what the validity of those add-ons are? I mean, are they quite high? They're, I don't think they're necessary. Mm. I think there's sorry, there was a technical technical issue there from Holly's end. Uh, the question was how how valid are some of those add-on tests, but you were saying that you don't think they're necessary. Yeah, I don't think the add-ons that couples are offered are necessary. Um, I think it's just another way to add to the price and to make more profit. You know, they, you know, do you want to have your embryos graded? Do you want to have the sperm graded? Do you want to have the eggs graded? Do you want to do testing? Do you want to do, you know, sperm sorting? All that kind of, those are all add-ons that, and it's, it's kind of gimmicky because they're just trying to upsell you and increase your odds that you'll get a take-home baby. Yeah. And also it takes away from the mystique of pregnancy. And then, you know, the natural rhythm and physiological rhythm that comes with being pregnant and then going into motherhood. I don't know. I feel no. like anyway. I mean, I was I was awestruck not too recently. Um, uh, a friend of mine was pregnant and they weren't they weren't going to find out the sex of the baby. And it's like such an oddity. Yeah. Like, you know, everybody has their, you know, their sex reveal parties. <laughs> pink balloons or blue balloons i'm like i'm like how refresh refreshing you're just gonna you're gonna prepare the home for a baby and you're gonna welcome whatever baby comes whenever you deliver that baby so yeah it's so true it's so true i mean we i definitely would love to see more of that coming back in uh i think we've got a long way to go with with the rise of fertility treatments um are we starting to see a bit of a shift away from the woman putting her body through multiple rounds of IVF and using surrogacy, or is that still quite new? I think in the United States, uh, we are we are for sure seeing that shift, um, and and that is in the same space of using women for their eggs and or using women for their their, their wombs as surrogate mothers. Um, you know, we have new in legislation that's been introduced in the U.S. Um, at the federal level, and it's called like the Family Building Act. And it's being supported by, you know, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. It's been supported by Resolve, which is the lobbying arm of um, the American Society of Reproduction. Um, it's being supported by military groups that want to help infertile military people or people that have been wounded in their military 
military service, you know, because they've been, you know, you know, harmed or damaged, their fertility has been harmed or damaged in their job, um, which all that means they're prepared somebody who wants to access. And, it, and the language isn't even tied to infertility. It's tied to right to build a family. Interesting. So it's not being a, yeah, it's not being attached to here's a way that we're going to help infertile couples. Um, and, and I'm not in favor of third party conception to help anybody. Yeah. But the, the whole language of the legislation is around the right to build a family and that the government has no um, say in how how you build that family. Mm. What what how come you're not in favor of third party? I'd love to get into this. I, I mean, my the saying that comes to mind, which I think Yolanda and Emily Saldea coined, is um, in order to buy a baby, you must first rent a woman. And I think that like really hits that, that sort of statement because it's true. Um, and I think that gets really neglected that there's this other woman <laughs> that's effectively going through the process of birthing that just gets kind of pushed to the side. But I would love to hear your reasoning as to why you're not in favor of it. Yeah. And just to add to that, you know, in the in the case of gay couples, and again, I'm not bashing on gay couples, I'm bashing on people, anybody who uses, you know, women's bodies to have a baby. Um, you know, gay men use egg donors too, and she's hardly ever mentioned at all. Mm. You know, and egg donors definitely have risks to their own health and their own fertility and their own short and long-term health in, you know, going through the egg donation process. But, you know, my my sort of talking point is nobody has a right to a child and nobody has a right to exploit or risk another woman's health in order for you to have that child. So there's so many things. And, and again, there's, there's problems, you know, because we don't even care seem to care at all about these children, although they'll just be fine. And we know, you know, if you're really in tune to maternal child health, maternal child bonding, you understand the trauma that happens when a child and a mother are separated at birth. Um, and that is a that is a wound. I mean, I know Nancy Barrier. She's in, I interviewed her in one of my uh, films. She's actually a neighbor of mine. And she wrote a very famous book called Primal Wound. And most of her research has been in the space of, um, of adoption and what happens when, you know, uh, mothers separate from their child because of adoption. And, and that, that wound separates, you know, for surrogacy too. It's not like the baby knows any difference. Baby's not going, oh, well, she's a surrogate mother um, or she's a birth mother who can't keep me. You know, the baby has no concept of, of that separation. Uh, and, you know, again, the fact that IVF is risky, assisted reproductive technology is risky to the woman's health, it's risky to the health of the child. You know, there's just so many things to not like about third-party conception. My own published research that we published last year, we took uh, 97, I forget, I think it was 97 gestational surrogates. I hate that word. Mm. You know, birth mothers, women. Gestators, might. It's the worst word. We got gestators, we got chest feeders. It's like, ah. <laughs> um, so we took these women through uh, our, you know, peer-reviewed, you know, study and we compared their own pregnancies with their own children with their surrogate pregnancies and as far as i know that research has never been done we do have a couple of really good studies that have been published on surrogate pregnancies and the risk but to actually compare the surrogate in the same woman you know the same pregnancy in the same woman the surrogate pregnancy with the you know with their own you know spontaneous natural conception children 
And overwhelmingly, these are much higher risk pregnancies, mm. uh, much higher rates of cesarean section, uh, much higher rates of postpartum depression, which was something we didn't we didn't expect to find. That was like kind of one of those aha moments. And it makes nat- perfect sense, though. You know, a woman carries a baby for nine months and goes home with empty arms and, you know, and breasts, breasts full of milk to feed a baby. And, you know, it makes sense that she would have some kind of trauma and, and that would exhibit itself in postpartum depression. And, and overwhelmingly, surrogacy is commercial. So we looked at the demographics of the finances in America and, you know, women are not impoverished like in India or Thailand or, you know, third world countries or even the Ukrainian surrogates. But still, the women in the U.S. who were part of our study were were in the lower tiered incomes and they were partnered with, you know, lower educated uh, husbands or partners, you know, like high school maybe a little bit of college degree. So they were, you know, sort of the lower income of American, you know, populations. So yeah, there's just so much, you know, I'm no fun at parties. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a quick break from this knowledge bomb episode. If you're enjoying the podcast and want to find more information on how to become your most fertile self, make sure you head to thewomenseries.com and check out my full access membership. Or if you want something a little less committal, have a look at the Free Range Fertility Summit, a once-off download where eight experts in fertility speak on topics such as preconception care right through to postpartum. You can find more information on this in the show notes. And now, back to the show. Oh, that's too funny. Um, well, I have I have read that. I have read that uh, overwhelmingly those who are surrogates, at least within America, I'm not sure within Australia, do come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And I think, uh, you know, this is something that needs to be discussed as well because you're seeing almost like the glorification of surrogacy coming up through the Hollywood system where you've got the Kardashians and you've got these huge celebrities now just deciding to pay a woman to birth their children, I'm presuming because they don't want to ruin their figures. Um, And this is becoming acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's um, a famous uh, celebrity couple in the United States, Nick Jonas. He's one of the the band, the Jonas Brothers and his wife, they just, you know, a, a year ago had their first child through surrogacy. And at the time, um, his wife was actually, you know, interviewed and said in the interview that this was a convenience um, because their careers were kind of taking off and that it was really going to impact, you know, their ability to pursue their careers by having her have to stop, you know, for nine months and have a baby. Now, she recently because the baby just turned one she was back in the press so how's the baby blah 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 and you know they're thinking about having another surrogate and she backpedaled on that because I think she took so much backlash so Mm -hmm. now she's saying that she had complications she had difficulty you know she's trying to make it sound like they needed to use a surrogate but but yeah it's clear that there's so many people that um don't need a surrogate but it's Mm -hmm. a convenience and and do you feel like at the core of this part of the conversation, which I feel like might also tip into the next phase of our conversation around transgender, at the core of it, there's still this real sentiment of just 
fucking over women, to put it bluntly. Yeah. I mean, I live in a state, California, where we have over 200 men who I have identified as women who are incarcerated in prisons in California um, with women prisoners. And these are men, these are fully, you know, not, they have not had their bits and pieces chopped off. They just say that they're a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, I live in a state, California, which has become a trans sanctuary state. So if a, you happen to be a, a minor child and you live in a state that won't let you block your puberty or go on cross-sex hormones, you can flee to California and we will, with taxpayer money, you know, pay for your transition, you know, uh, therapy. Uh, you know, look at what's happened to women's sports. Mm. You know, look at what, what's happened with women saying, I don't want men in my single sex spaces. I don't want to go into my gym locker room and having a fully endowed man walking around naked in front of my daughter. Uh, you know, it's and it, you know, I'm sure it happened the other way that where there are women who are identifying as men, but they're not making the waves that, that the that the men are. You know, you don't see women competing against men pretending to be men in sports. You don't say you don't see women saying I'm a I'm a man, put me in prison with the men because they know they'll have the bloody hell beat out of them. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, just, it's just stupid. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> what you're what you're sort of uh, um, confirming to me is that even, you know, whether it's in the surrogacy space or the transgender space, actual physiological biological women are the ones who are still being oppressed by these practices we're renting our bodies out you've got unethical surrogacy practices happening in the ukraine and india where i think women probably don't even really know sometimes what's happening to their body they're having their children taken away from them at birth and then to your point you're seeing all of this scenario with men being in quotation marks women and forcing themselves in women's spaces and now actual women we can't even talk about this because we'll be called a bigot or we'll be called a turf and even worse in the u.s you know leading feminist organizations will say things like trans women are women and you're mm. like holy hell when you've got the national organization for women and planned parenthood and all these you know women's groups that that have our, our support are basically, you know, giving away our rights that they fought, you know, decades for. Hmm. It's just, it's crazy. It, it's, it's, yeah. And, you know, one of the things, you know, that I, because of my work in fertility medicine and assisted reproductive technology, and I was in my background, I was a pediatric nurse. So I took care of children, you know, trans children. And I don't believe in trans. I'm, you know, your audience won't see me using my quotes, um, but children that are going to either have their puberty block or later after puberty going to go on cross-sex hormones, they're offered fertility preservation. They're, you know, they will say to a young boy, let's freeze and bank your sperm now so that when you transition to a woman, you can at least, you know, tap into fertility medicine and you will have your sperm banked. So then you can be, you know, have a biological child. And the same with girls, you know, we will freeze and bank your eggs now. So that when you're living life as a man, you know, you can still have your own biological children. Now, of course, some of those scenarios, depending on, you know, if it's a, if a biological male or if it's a woman who's had a hysterectomy, they're going to need a, they're going to need a surrogate. 
Mm. Um, and, and if they're somebody who's banked their sperm, they may need an egg donor as well, you know, just depending on how people are partnered. But it's just another area where these uh, children, minors, are being told a lie. One, the first lie is that you can change your sex, you can change your body so that you can become the opposite sex. And the second lie is you can preserve your fertility. So later on, if you want biological children, you can have children. It's mm. just a cur- total corruption of medicine. Mm. And we don't know what the consequence is going to be. I mean, I'm, I'm sure similarly to IVF, just in the actual male and female fertility space, this this trans um, community of kids transitioning surely there's just not enough data on that yet to know absolutely none and as far as trans people having pregnancies you know if you're a a trans man meaning you're a woman and you've been on testosterone really high doses that our female body should never be exposed to and then you're going to become pregnant because you still have your your, your uterus maybe you haven't opted to have bottom surgery and you still have a, a you know all your female reproductive parts intact what is the impact of that growing fetus you know that's being you know in a female body but all this testosterone so now they're telling these women go off your testosterone i think it's four months is the recommendation stop your testosterone for four months then have your pregnancy and then after the pregnancy you go but again there's no science here we're just making this stuff up and thinking that this woman can be on these high, high dose levels of testosterone and then just go off them for the duration of the pregnancy and then go back on them. And you just you have to imagine between the, the child being negatively impacted by you know growing in a in a womb that's got residual testosterone. Mm. <laughs> Crazy. It's yeah. Crazy. I've I've heard you also speak about that. I mean, I don't think they've done human studies yet, but you've spoken about mice studies where they've actually done uteri transplants yeah I mean, we've done it... yeah there we have done uterine transplants in women um and there have been a, a handful you know two or three i don't don't quote me on the number of actual live birth you know so they've actually been i guess you could say successful um but you know it's it's that's experimental it's experimental mm. to the woman and it's certainly experimental to the developing fetus in, in a pregnancy. You know, these women have to take anti-rejection drugs. Um, they have to go, first they have to go through a surgery to have the uterine transplant. Then they have to stay on the anti-rejection drugs through the, the entire pregnancy so they don't reject the uterus. Then they have to deliver by cesarean suction because they can't do a normal vaginal uh, delivery with a, a uterine transplant. They're not letting these women go into labor and, and actually. Because oh, you know, they wouldn't, they birth. wouldn't have a cervix. Would they have a cervix? No. Um, I can, they, you know, they can transplant the, the cervix. Right. But, but, but I don't, I don't know about that detail, but the, the practice is that they deliver by cesarean section. Right. Um, and then so that they don't have to stay on anti-rejection drugs if they're not planning to have more children, then they have the uterus removed. So just add up all those surgeries of transplanting the uterus, C-section, having the uterus removed, being on anti-rejection drugs. And and you kind of go, it's okay not to become a mother. Yeah, well. It's okay, women, if you can't, you know, to go through all these serious, complicated things, dangerous Mm -hmm. things, experimental Mm -hmm. things, um, you know, part of me wonders, 
and I get the desperation. Mm. I get the I get the longing. You know, I get those you know those women urges to be pregnant and give birth and have a baby and nurse your baby and all those. I get all that. But at one point, you would think you could say there's this limit. There's a limit. Yeah, of course. And I think this is what I meant by nuanced conversation because. <laughs> Um, you know, how do you put this into an Instagram post? I mean, you just can't. Um, but it also opens up the conversation around nature and circling all the way back to what you started on with this idea that we've kind of been fooled into thinking that we can just push out our fertility for as long as we like keep climbing the corporate ladder, keep living within that sort of patriarchal system of making money and, you know, and then just decide to have a baby when we want. But the reality is there is physiological and biological processes that limit us from when we can have children. Yeah. And that's not respected. Yeah. We have a saying around our shop, you know, Mother Nature bats last. You know, we think we think we can fool, we think we can manipulate, we think we can do all these things, but in the end, you know, we there's so much that we have no control over. Yeah. We, and it's hard. I mean, I live again, you know, in near the Silicon Valley out here. It's hard to say no to technology, right? Technology mm -hmm. is sold as it's good, it's progress, it's gonna make our life easier, it's gonna do all these wonderful things. I think it was Jennifer Bielek, I heard her say, you know, what, how could you say no and not have a cell phone? We don't, you, we don't have pay phones anymore. I mean, even low income people have to have a cell phone or else they can't communicate. If, you know, their car breaks down, they can't walk to the gas station and use plug in a quarter and call home. Um, so it's hard, hard to say no to technology. Do you know Mary Lou Singleton? Are you familiar with Mary Lou Singleton and her no. work in She's in, in the state. She's in New Mexico. Um, she's a nurse practitioner. And she, I've learned a lot just from listening to her. But she will just talk about, you know, how it's just once technology is entered into your pregnancy, which should be a normal, natural, you know, extension of your life. You know, there's just all this technology that you've, you've sort of agreed and consented to once you walk into the doors of your OBGYN doctor. It's true. It's true. And yeah. as you know, one one thing of technology tends to then lead to the next thing of technology, right? So one intervention leads to the next intervention. I mean, not to talk about myself too much on this podcast, but I recently had a wild pregnancy and um, I didn't have scans. I didn't have any of that sort of stuff. And to experience that my network, my inner network, just be so shocked that I didn't engage with those technological systems was really interesting. Um, and how, and it just showed me how detached we've become from this natural process that is pregnancy and birth, which is pretty terrifying. Um, I would love for you to maybe talk to, about, so, I mean, obviously you've got, um, strong, well-founded opinions around surrogacy, um, and this notion that, you know, not all women should be mothers. Where does adoption come into this conversation? Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an adoption expert just because I work more in the, the medical technology side of, you know, all the assisted reproductive technology. But of course, there's there's similarities. I mean, we have to, we can't just 
fool ourselves and think that the separation of a, a birth mother, uh, a mother and her baby is without trauma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's well documented in the literature. When you look at policy in the United States, you know, in the olden days, you know, adoptions were secret, adoption records were sealed, don't tell them, they don't need to know. Um, but, you know, babies, children grow up, they're very intuitive, you know, and, and I, you know, one of my documentary films is Anonymous Father's Day, and that's on young adults who are here because of anonymous, anonymous sperm donation. And a lot of the similarities, like when you talk to the donor conceived and, you know, there's a lot of donor conceived that are very active in Australia mm -hmm. who actually changed, changed Australian law um, so that, you know, sperm donation can't be anonymous anymore. And children have a right to know who their biological father is. But when you hear the stories of how they found out, it's very similar to children in the olden days that you know, were told when they were older that they were adopted or donor conceived people. They, they'll say things like, well, I, I knew it all the time because I didn't fit in. I didn't look like these people. You know, mm. uh, people would say, you know, one of the women in my film, she she noticed it was just a clue that she picked up whenever she would be out with her father. And people would say, you look like your dad. She said, my dad always looked down at his feet. Oh. Because he knew they used a sperm donor. And, but that was just a little clue. She didn't know what it meant. But when she found out that she was conceived through sperm donation, she went, that's why my dad always looked down at his feet when somebody said I'd look like him. I mean, it's just like, like that. She just put the two together. Mm -hmm. um, so there's those kind of things that you see happening with uh, children that are adopted, children that are donor conceived. You know, you know, why did my birth mother give me up? Does she think about me? Because I think about her every day. Same with donor conceived people. You know, does my egg donor mom, you know, wonder about me? Does she ever wonder what happened to her eggs? I mean, a birth mother knows that there's a baby out there. Now, sperm and egg donors, that they just do the donation and that's the end of the story for them. Mm. So they have no idea of knowing, unless the agency tells them, you know, you know, they just think their eggs are out there in the, <laughs> the atmosphere somewhere. Um, so those, those kind of things. Um, but I am against third-party conception. But I'm not against adoption. I'm just against, I, I think in a perfect world, we in, in our country, we need to do a much better job of if, if and when, anytime it possible, we need to keep mothers, birth mothers, biological yeah. mothers with their and babies. I, and I think this is the crux of the issue for so much of what we're talking about um, is that women are just not really supported <laughs> to, yeah. to stay at home, nurture their child, be with their child, um, develop them in a way that's loving and caring. Like it's just this way that society has now constructed itself. It's not supportive of that. So I, I just want to make it clear to anyone that's listening. I do definitely understand why women have to go back into the work workforce. I understand that, you know, there's bills to pay, there's mortgages to pay, but the problem is that it shouldn't be that way. <laughs> I remember my first, when I had just given birth to our first child and in the U.S., you get six weeks of paid time off. So I had six weeks off. Um, my first night, I was back at the hospital on a night shift, a 12-hour night shift, working 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. in an intensive care unit, a pediatric intensive care unit. And I'm sitting in the break room, getting ready to start my shift. And I'm thinking, I'm here taking care of these babies. I should be home with my own child. Mm. You know, but I, again, my reality was I needed to work. Now, 
what I know now, I maybe would have been way more creative and may way more forthright and saying, I need to find another way to maybe make money at home, working from my home, doing something else. But I was just, you know, in my young mind, then that's just what in America, that's what women do. They have a baby and six weeks later, they're back at work. Yeah. um, And it spills out into all, it spills out into so many other industries then, right? So this is where we start to see formula having to be used a lot more because you're away from your child and childcare having to be used. And, you know, so there's like, there's all these proxy industries that then profit off the fact that women can't just be at home with their child. Um, So it's, it's, it's it's a big conversation. I don't really know what the solution is. I just think it's worth us stating that that's ultimately the crux of the problem. And we have made a little bit of progress in the States as far as it goes to paternity leave. Because mm-hmm. I do think dads are important too, in, especially in the postpartum period, because there can be very much bonding with the baby, helping helping mom, you know, helping baby. Um, so we have seen a lot of companies um, now give paternity leave as, as well as maternity leave. So that is nice. But back to one, one more thing I'll say about adoption and third-party conception. One big change is you know, when a, when a child is born and is going to be put up for adoption, I hate those words, put up for adoption, surrender to adoption, given to it, uh, you know, speaking about a little baby, um, you know, the original birth certificate still has the legal names of the parents, you know, mm-hmm. the birth mother, the birth father, the biological parents are on that original birth certificate. Then that child goes through a legal adoption and then the new parents' names go on the adoption. And we've changed the law so that we don't destroy those original birth certificates. And then in most states, there might be one or two that don't, most states now have to keep that original birth certificate. And that is the right to the child. If they wanna go down and see their original birth certificate, they have access to that. Now that is, that it doesn't exist at all in third party conception. When mm-hmm. a baby is born in California, if she's born of egg donation, if she's born of surrogacy, if she's born of sperm donation, the only names that go on the birth certificate are who the parents are that are taking that baby home. Could be two dads. It could be, you know, a, a man and a woman, depending. It could be one dad, well, you know, whoever's bringing that baby home. Legally, that baby is there. And that's the original birth certificate that will just say those names. So the, all those other peoples have been erased. And so when these children grow up and if they want to find out, you know, who do I get my nose from, mm. you know, you know, do I have a medical history of this kind of disease? I don't know, because I don't know, you know, who the egg donor was. You know, that's just not, that's gone. I mean, they have to do like genetic testing and, you know, hope that they get some kind of hits on some kind of, you know, database that is, you know, an ancestry.com or a 23andMe. And that's how a lot of donor can see people find half siblings is through DNA testing. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm. I mean, before we, I, I do want to ask you, pick your brain about um, the health consequences of transitioning children. Uh, but before we get to that, let's talk about what you just wrote a 1500 paper on, 1500 word paper on. Uh, I, I put up something on my social media a few weeks ago about this. So um, interesting when we we're off camera to those who are listening, Jennifer and I were, were just talking about the fact that there's what's what's the paper's na- um, title? Do you know? It's a whole gestation body donation. Oh, that's... Like that. it's just horrible. 
um, this idea that we should start using brain dead women as surrogates. So I'll let you take the floor with with this one, Jennifer. Yeah, well, like how we all find things out it was on Twitter, on social media. Somebody tweeted this. You know, it's an it's in a serious academic journal. This woman in Sweden, you know, proposed that we should use brain dead women to serve as gestational surrogates, and that that would just be an extension of organ organ donation. And she didn't see anything ethically problematic with that at all. And in fact, she actually said that this would solve all the ethical problems of using surrogates because we're using brain dead women. And as long as they've signed up to be organ donors when they're dead, you know, that that the organ, you know, the uterus is an organ. Um, and she didn't see, you know, that this life, this woman's life has no purpose um, and that this is a, a good use of her body because of the end, you know, that this baby's at the end. Uh, she writes nothing about the fact that this might be harmful to a baby growing for nine months in a in a dead, you know, brain dead woman's body, who's going to be, you know, again, back to my hospital work, she's going to be hooked up to life support machines. She's going to be 24 seven in an intensive care unit with beeps and sounds and, and, you know, nurses and doctors, you know, manipulating the body all the time and turning the body and taking care of the body. And that this, this wouldn't, you know, she doesn't even raise any kind of concern that maybe this might be detrimental to the life of the child who then has to find out when they're growing up that they literally were gestated in a woman's body. Um, you know, we're just going to keep these women alive for nine months. I mean, it just sounds so horrible and ghastly. Mm. And she thinks that, you know, it's a thought experiment. We're not doing this yet. But we're already, you know, a minute away from gestating babies in artificial wombs. Um, and, you know, so, and how quickly will we embrace that new technological wonderful breakthrough that we don't now have to exploit women for their surrogate wounds. We have these gestational, you know, artificial gestational machines. So, yeah, so I wrote about that. Maybe you can link to it in the show notes and people can can read it. But, you know, she calls the women, she said the woman's a fetal container. I didn't, I didn't actually write that. That's a fetal container. And just yeah. like how sickening. And I think, and the, you know, back to my point of what women, I mean, this, is, this is a woman who's mm. proposing this solution, solution in quotes. Yeah. Like, it's so yeah. disappointing, isn't it? The the artificial womb stuff really scares me. Like I just feel like we are so close to tipping into this trans transhumanistic yeah. state, right? And for That's with AI, because now we can think, oh well, we'll just we'll, with all this artificial intelligence technology, this artificial womb will be just like a real woman. You know, we'll have this little robotic, you know lovely mother talking to the baby and singing and reading books. It's like, oh, God. How, how close are they to actually getting that off the ground, do you know? Artificial wombs? Yeah. Oh, I think I think it's really close. I mean, one, because we've been doing, we've been gestating animals for quite some time in artificial wombs. So, you know, that's sort of how we sort of bring a new thing to, to market mm -hmm. is, you know, the, the animal testing has been, and it's been quite successful in, you know, gestating, you know, like, uh, lamb sheeps um you know so for for laboratory pur purposes now what my big question is how many people are going to want their child child to be grown and gestated in an artificial womb mm. will there be will there be a market for it isn't it awful when we're talking about babies and conception that we have to talk in terms of market and you know who would who would sign up to be 
basically the guinea pig. Yeah, let my baby go first. Because eventually it, it's got to be, if it moves to humans, there's got to be the first baby that does it, right? Definitely. And you're basically signing this baby up to be the, you know, the test case to see what goes wrong. And, you know, who, there's so many ethical problems for me around ma- allowing people to consent to do that to their child who doesn't have the ability to consent. Yeah, wow. It's and that's the same with stuff. kids. And the trans thing, you know, kids are, parents are consenting for minors to, you know, block their puberty, to go on the cross-sex hormones, to have these surgeries, to have their double mastectomies, you know, because they're in the U.S. I don't know what the age of consent is in Australia, but in the U.S. it's pretty much 16 or 17 Mm -hmm. um, before children can, you know, legally consent to certain types of medical interventions. Mm. Um, I've watched your documentary, The Detransition Diaries. Um, and thank you uh, it's really good for anyone that wants to watch it it's on well I got it off your bio Jennifer on your Instagram but um what is the and I don't know if you can tell me this number but what is the percentage or the statistic around those who transition as a child and then de-transition if you'd like to keep listening to this episode please head over to Patreon where for five dollars a month you get unlimited access You can also find full access to the podcast, as well as my courses, multiple webinars and eBooks at thewomenseries.com. As always, please remember this podcast is for informational purposes only. You should seek professional advice for any health related issues. Thank you for supporting me and my desire to make all women healthy, fertile and whole.